This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week TV podcast. Joining me again, Andrew Mercado. Welcome back, Andrew. Hi, James. I wanted to focus a little bit on um, a new series coming to seven this weekend between two worlds because I think we're both sort of fans in a way of Bevan Lee, the creator, probably one of the most successful drama um, creators, producers, writers um, in the history of Australian TV, I guess, at least in the last 20, 30 years. Um, So, and I've only seen one episode. You've seen a couple more. I've watched more now. Okay. So, yeah, I'm quite up to it. And I I think that Bevan Lee would um, say that he comes second to Reg Watson, who was his mentor. Reg, Reg Watson created The Restless Years, The Young Doctors, Prisoner, Sons and Daughters and Neighbours. And Bevan worked with Reg Watson. And I remember when I interviewed Bevan for my Super Aussie Soaps book all that year ago, Bevan was like on his soapbox about it's so disgraceful we've never given Reg Watson a Hall of Fame Logie that, you know, we, that we've still got cultural cringe in this country. He's this genius that created these TV shows that, you know, now screen all around the world and what acknowledgement has he ever gotten from Australia? And you know what? He, all these years later, we didn't really acknowledge Reg Watson all that more except when he died. But, yes, in the years since, Beverly is absolutely uh, the most prolific and successful Australian creator. And I think that we should mention Reg Watson and Beverly in the same breath, and I think they'd both be very happy to be in each other's company. Yeah, the thing about uh, that interests me about Between Two Worlds is what Beverly talks about combining two TV genres, if you like. Yeah. One of them he talked about, uh, Sons and Daughters, he said... He wanted a bit of the feel of sons and daughters. What was the thing he said, sort of on um, on speed or something? On yeah, he called it uh, sons and daughters on steroids, That's which it. made me laugh. You know, because sons and daughters was a show that was two things at once. It was about a rich family in Sydney, and it was about a working class family in Melbourne, and that was deliberately created because back then we had an issue with Sydney and Melbourne shows. The Sydney show wouldn't rate well in Melbourne, vice versa. So they created this show that was set in both cities and kind of by accident, I guess, one was rich and one was not so uh, wealthy. And see, Beverly took that very cleverly uh, when he made the TV show Always Greener, which was a show about a family in the city and a family in the country who decided to switch houses and go live in each other's places. And the show then was two shows. It was a family drama, a city drama, but it was also a rural, uh, regional soap as well. So he's done that very successfully in the past. He's learned how to do it well from Reg Watson, and he brilliantly merges in between two worlds what he describes as a family drama like Back to the Rafters, mixed with what he describes as high melodrama. And he says that there should be no cringe about that, and I'm with him too. I love uh, high melodrama, nighttime soaps. It's one of my favourite genres of television. And I think this is the first time in Australia that we have pulled off a show about a super rich family that looks super rich. (laughs) done shows about rich families on the cheap 
for years and years and years. I mean, even sons and daughters, that ugly Hamilton house in Dural where every set was beige and brown. I mean, you know, they were meant to be rich, but it never looked that way. And there's so many other shows that we've done over the years. I mean, we tried to do rich shows like Taurus Rising and Return to Eden, the series in the 80s, and cash in on that Dallas dynasty vibe, but we could never get it quite right. But I tell you what, Seven Studios have spent a lot of money on making Between Two Worlds look obscenely wealthy, and I reckon for the first time in this country they've pulled it off. Well, yeah, let's hope they get some payback from the audience when this screens. I mean, part of the the reason I think they've achieved this, and I'm with you, a lot of those shows that had wealthy families are just walking around in flimsy, like, semi-cardboard sets that just yeah. weren't convincing at all. But yeah. the apartment that the, um, the, the Walfords live in is just yeah. brilliant. Looks like, you know, it would be worth many millions of dollars. It's come up brilliantly. And the work of Kruv Stenders, the director on the first two episodes, I think um, Bevan Lee this week called him, you know, the wonderfully cinematic work he did. So he directs the first two episodes and that sets the tone, of course, for the rest of the, um, the following eight episodes after that. Yeah, I think this is a show that Seven will be able to sell around the world. I can see it on a Netflix or something like that and people all over the world tuning in going, wow, look at this. I mean, they don't just live in an apartment in Sydney. They live in a penthouse literally on the same level as Sydney Centrepoint. Like that's just kind of out there to the right. And every room in this penthouse apartment has this incredible backdrop of Sydney Harbour and the CBD. But even when you get to the, the other family, the not-so-rich family, uh, she seems to live on the northern beaches of Sydney and her house is right on the water. So I think that overseas audiences are going to look at this and go, wow, look at Australia, look at Sydney skyline, the beaches. I think it's going to play really, really well overseas. Uh, Bevan Lee turns 70 in November this year. He thinks this will be his last series. He said, look, it's... It's time to let some of these younger people come in and, and give them a go. At, um, give them a go. I've had my turn. He said, look, he might write a book. He maybe might work on a, a one-off or a movie or something, but this is the last time. He said he hopes it gets um, renewed to a series after it screens, and he wrote the whole thing. I mean, he wrote nine episodes outright, and then someone else contributed or, or wrote the tenth, but then he contributed to that as well. And I think his quote to me was like, if, if Tom Stoppard can write a whole play, why can't I do a whole series? And that's just what he's done. Yeah, I really, really, really hope this works for Seven because it won't be cheap to make. And we're in a period now where Aussie drama content quota points have been abandoned and the networks are saying, great, let's not do them anymore. We don't need them. And it's like, no, like, look at what happens when you do have drama quota points. We get something like Between Two Worlds um, and it, it, it's worth every cent. But you're right, the audience has to come to this. So I really hope they do. Uh, it's a slow burn. Between two worlds. It's not like there's this epi that episode one is just the start of a very deep reach saga. For me, it was episode three that really made me go, whoa, this show is really, really pushing it. So I hope the audience will stick with it because I think if they do stick with it, 
they'll be there all the way. And, you know, I mean, I always think that we should support Australian shows, but I think, you know, if you don't want to watch cheap reality for the rest of your life, I think it's really, really important now that we watch an expensive made Australian drama because they're becoming more and more expensive to make all the time. Yeah, I know. I think you're, you're a bit more generous maybe with the Aussie productions. You you stick with things because they're Australian. Yeah. I, I don't always do that. But there was enough in that first episode, though, for me to, to keep coming back. I mean, there's a there's a... A very, I'm not going to mention who it is because it might give it away, but there's a very well-known Australian actor yeah. who only turns up in one episode. Yeah, yeah. And, and just the fact that they were able to do that, I think, wow, you know, that, look what happened to that person. Anything could happen in this, this series. Mm-hmm. And there's an amazing, something pretty memorable happens at the end of, well, there's a few things going actually, but towards yeah. the end, there's something they set up that a bit of a hook to keep you viewing. And he says, Look, for the people who try and predict the plot, you've got to be careful, you know, because he likes setting things up and then he likes then, you know, he get what's he call it, misdirection, you know, he sets yeah. little traps for people who, who like to think. And I'm a great one, I always liked saying, Oh, I know what's going to happen here. Yeah. And if you do that in between two worlds, you could trip up and there's a big setup at the end of the first episode that you want to come back and find out, oh, was I right in thinking this will happen or will it unfold that way in the rest of the season? You know, Beverly loves to be outrageous. And I remember when I interviewed him in 2005, I asked him, what's the most outrageous thing you've ever written and he cited The Power, The Passion, which was a show that Christopher Scase commissioned in 1989 when there was an unlimited budget. It was going to be an Australian daytime soap to go up against Midday with Ray Martin. It was going to be the Burt Newton show for an hour and then a daytime soap like Days of Our Lives. And, of course, it was about a super rich family and, yeah, the sets were pretty good but they were still just sets. And in this show, there was a character who had a split personality and she, Beverly said the most outrageous thing he ever wrote was uh, she wakes up in bed one morning and can't remember what's happened the night before. And when she goes into the bathroom, there scrawled on the bathroom mirror in lipstick is, I'm back, you frigid bitch. (laughs) And it was her alter ego who'd been out the night before slutting away in bars and Bevan C said it was so outrageous the crew made t-shirts that said I'm back you frigid bitch they all thought it was so hilarious and and since then Bevan Lee's made a lot of great shows but I think in between two worlds he's going to top that moment because the the twist really starts turning in episode three and I, and I note in his interview that he's nervous about writing in today's climate and things getting judged in the future. But I don't think that he should be nervous at all because I note that in future episodes of Between Two Worlds, some of the situations and and some of the motivations that are driving these characters is actually something that's very now today. He actually does have his finger on the pulse and he shouldn't worry um, about how it's going to be judged in the future. Just make it for now. Um, I don't think it's problematic at all. I I reckon that amongst all the outrageousness and and, uh, outrageousness of Between Two Worlds, he's still saying some uh, very interesting things here about why people 
might go bad. I might just explore that a moment with you for, and we'll, we're going to talk about some of Bevan Lee's other work before we finish and a couple of other programs that have been on this week. But on this whole, I mean, some people call it cancel culture. He called it sort of correct speak, I think he, he mentioned it. Um, and, and you're big on your socials at, at, you know, calling out people you think have done the wrong thing. And so just talk to me a little bit about that, you know. When people unintentionally maybe or do say or do the wrong thing it, working today or they have work, their back catalogue, um, deserves to be sort of maybe edited, um, pulled or whatever, or, you know, warning signs, things like that. Give us, give us your view on all that. Well, I, I think the media has been exaggerating cancel culture and, you know, they've been mis, they've been over-exaggerating. You know, the two examples I'll use are Gone with the Wind and Foldy Towers. Gone with the Wind was taken down from a US streaming site for a few weeks so that they could film a new introduction to it. The Daily Telegraph here in, here in Sydney put it on the front page of the newspaper, the entire front page, Gone with the Wind. When it got returned to HBO Max, it was just a small article on page five of the Daily Telegraph. So what happens is you have someone like Christopher Pine, a very smart man, sitting there on Q&A for five minutes talking about Gone with the Wind being cancelled and how else are you able to make a film about the Civil War without uh, having American slaves in it? And it took Brooke Boney, thank goodness, who was sitting next to him to say, Christopher, it hasn't been cancelled. It's back up on the website now with a video. And the same thing's been going on with Faulty Towers. An episode of Faulty Towers was taken down from an English streaming site for a few days so they could put a disclaimer at the front of it. The episode was the don't mention the war episode of Faulty Towers. So everyone went off their heads about, oh, we can't even make jokes about Germans now. That's not why Faulty Towers was taken down. It's because the major uses the N-word about West Indians in it repeatedly. And John Cleese allowed the BBC to edit that scene out in the 90s. So all we're doing is getting to a point where we might have to have a slightly different classification system and put some warnings on things. I'm not asking for anything to be cancelled. I think that history in film and television should stay, but that there's nothing wrong with pointing out when it's problematic. And even if a, a streaming service like Netflix still takes down some Chris Lilly series because of blackface, you can still go down to JB Hi-Fi and buy them. And they're still on YouTube if you want to watch blackface skits. You can watch the black and white minstrel show on YouTube if that's your bag. So stop trying to make out that stuff's being cancelled because it hasn't been cancelled. The Paul Hogan show didn't get cancelled because it got cancelled back in 1986. Everyone's going, oh, what about Paul Hogan? He hasn't been on TV since 1986, people. Settle down. That's mm. my point. Yeah. And you think it's, so it's more about making people aware today yes. of being, um, you know, um, considerate of others and, and, you know, what other people think. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for keeping things and saying, you know, in, 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 in old TV shows, they did use the word, the N-word, in love thy neighbour until death is due par. The, the, the premise of the show was to show that these, peop these racists were stupid and idiots and the butt of the jokes. But I would challenge someone who thinks that love thy neighbour should still be on TV today to sit down and watch an episode and count 
how many times the N-word is used. It's quite shocking. And I think that you would really say, well, I might be able to watch this as an adult and look at it through history, but maybe, yeah, this wouldn't be the right thing to put on TV now with kids and show this to a new generation. Let's just look at this all sensibly, but nothing's being cancelled. Okay, yep. Between Two Worlds, talk to me a little bit about the cast. Um, the two leads, I guess, um, is it Philip Quast, is it Quast? Yeah. and um, Hermione Norris. Uh, yeah. I think Philip's an Aussie. Um, yes. but both of them have sort of international profiles, which will probably help for an international audience. Yeah, Philip Quast is mostly a theatre actor here in Australia. It's great to see him in that role as this kind of megalomaniac billionaire. He brings such gravitas to it. I found him so believable. And his uh, journey, uh, his arc as a character is so interesting. And Hermione Norris, I never really watched Cold Feet, um, so I'm vaguely aware of her, but, my God, does she bring the iciness as the... The rich bitch in this, wow. And she's not really a bitch. That's the wrong word to use. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, she. I just thought fantastic casting there with her. Yeah, and I've been a big Cold Feet fan all the way through and she's great in that. She's appeared in a, a number of UK uh, crime dramas as well as a, as a sort of a very icy um, um, police um, inspector or something like that, you know, detective, um, administrator, you know, so just really good in that. Um, Anybody in the supporting cast uh, yes, stand out I, for? I really want to, um, because the, then when we have the uh, the less wealthy family headed <laughs> by Sarah Wiseman, and, you know, I watched the f whole first episode going, she's fantastic, where have I seen her before? And I'd forgotten that she was in A Place to Call Home. But because that was a period piece, I hadn't seen her in something modern and, uh, and she really pulls it off. But the person I really want to uh, mention is Aaron Jeffrey yes. as the AFL football coach. He is so good in this. And uh, I would note that all the AFL football sequences in just one episode are more believable than two seasons of playing for keeps, which was the AFL show that uh, 10 made. I, you know, I just think that Aaron Jeffrey uh, recently has been doing some great character work. He put on some weight to play Chopper in that underbelly thing. He was great. I just think he's a really solid, underrated guy and that his uh, relationship with Sarah Wiseman in Between Two Worlds is, is one of the joys for me so far in the first four episodes. And Sarah Wiseman herself is pretty good, hasn't she? She's worked oh. here and in New Zealand. She's fantastic. Mm. Mm. The... Um the, so you've, you've sat through three. Um, it'd be interesting to see how it goes. It's, it follows on from um, the launch of Farmer Wants a Wife yeah. on Sunday night, which I think could bring a, a reasonable audience for seven. Um, it's up against the launch of um, Ninja Warrior or Australian Ninja Warrior, which yeah. you know, will we'll get a big audience. But then again, the, these shows, are, it's not for everybody, that sort of that family sort of uh, reality action format so um fingers crossed it'll do well the promos for farmer wants a wife are very very good james um you know seven yeah. are taking credit for all the marriages and babies that have been born while it was on nine which is a bit cheeky but you know the the promos they've made about their their new characters uh it, it does look a little bit farmer wants a white wife and all of that but nevertheless i'm i can feel myself getting sucked into those promos and feeling that 
I need to watch it on Sunday night. Whereas if it was coming back on nine, I'd probably be going, I don't need to watch this again. But yeah, I think I'm going to give it a look. Now, let's just, before we leave um, Bevan Lee, I want to ask you a little bit about his, his body of work. I mean, yeah. most recently known, I guess, for, um, um, uh, for Place to Call Home, um, yeah. before that, Pack to the Rafters. Pack to the Rafters, possibly his most successful ever series. It just did fantastic business for a long time. It did um, uh, Place to Call Home, calls for seven, and then Foxtel. But during his interview, he talked about, you know, he did have a few shows that weren't that great, that, that, that maybe didn't deserve to, the success that some of the others had. So give me your, your best and not so best, if you like, from his, his uh, CV. Well, Bevan actually uh, rewrote the original pilot for Home and Away. So Alan Bateman created the show, but then they looked at it and went, there's something not right about it. And Bevan Lee came in and kind of pulled it all apart and put it back together again. So you could sort of say that he co-created Home and Away and he came back as uh, the in charge of storylines at, you know, a crucial time in the show's history. And Bevan is the guy that brought back Milko, you know, when Sally Kate Ritchie talked about her imaginary friend Milko, Milko turned out to be alive and played by Josh Kwong Tart. And that was just a brilliant uh, masterstroke from Bevan Lee. So we can, we can put him into home in a way. He created All Saints. He created Winners and Losers. He created A Place to Call Home. Um, look, he was at Channel 9 for a while. He went over there and we know that Channel 9 has made some real dogs Australian drama-wise over the years. So, I mean, Bevan had a, you know, was involved in Pacific Drive and Family and Friends and Possession, an early Grundy show. He said that Paradise Beach was the low point of his career because uh, of the way they set that show up. Um, but, look, he also did a couple of things on Seven that didn't really go anywhere, Headland, uh, the university drama, Martial Law, which was going to be Lisa McCune's star vehicle after um, Blue Healers. And I mentioned before the power, the passion, uh, the daytime soap he created. But look, you know, everyone has, who works in television for as long as he does, uh, has probably as many flops as hits. And I think you're right. I think the fact that Home and Away is still on air today, the fact that uh, Pack to the Rafters used to get two million viewers plus at its peak for a family drama and, you know, Amazon Prime and going back to it with Back to the Rafters. All Saints went for so many years. Always Green is the show of his that I thought was brilliant that should have run for longer. Seven acts that show after two seasons, I think, because they replaced it with My Restaurant Rules. And back then, My Restaurant Rules didn't really work, and then they rejigged it into My Kitchen Rules. So it worked out in the end. But Always Greener was a fantastic show that you can now watch on 7 Plus, and uh, it was John Howard and Ann Tenney, and it was one of my favourite uh, Bevan Lee shows, um, but also... A place to call home. I really love that. I love that that Seven Acts that show and Foxtel brought it back and Bevan came back to uh, write the ending of A Place to Call Home. And so he got to finish what he started with a little break in the middle. Fantastic. Yeah. The um, You mentioned All Saints. I think something like over 300 episodes of that yeah, show. Yeah. And do you know what? Did, did you see a chart the other day of um, it was right up there, as was Blue Healers, in shows still being watched today? Really? Yeah, yeah. it was right up there. 
Yeah, it was uh, some years they were making um, they making over thirty episodes a year or something. I think. Oh, oh they were doing more than that, James. Or something. It's not virtually every week of the year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was an hour of drama. It wasn't a half-hour sitcom where they crank it out. Go through seven plus and have a look at the seasons. There's tons of episodes to watch and people are watching them still. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Bevan Lee, good luck and all your team and everybody who worked on it for um, for Between Two Worlds um, Sunday night. Yeah. Look, before we finish up this week, a couple of things that... Um, now, it's a big night on seven on Sunday night, so you've got Farmer Wants a Wife. Again, I, I think the uh, promos look great. Yep. I've always had a soft spot for that format. I'm not sure why, but I just find it interesting. Probably because part of me wants to drop out and go and live in the country and uh, yeah. not have to worry about city life. Um, yeah. Then Between Two Worlds Now, was it the second season of Liar then screening? Yeah, this is the one with Ewan Griffith and uh, Joanne Froggart, Liar. She was she accused him of rape and it was a, an ITV series. This is now the second series that's already screened in the UK. I haven't seen any promos for it on 7 because they're so busy pushing those shows. But if you watched Liar, you'll want to watch this second series and it comes on straight after Between Two Worlds. You can go Farmer Wants a Wife, Between Two Worlds and Liar and I reckon you'd have a pretty cracking night of entertainment there. You haven't watched one of The Liars yet, have you? Look, I watched it a little bit in the first season. I did see it because I watched uh, Gogglebox UK. I did see the reactions of people watching Series 2 and they were certainly still into it and they were still all agog when it ended. It's it's another kind of big whodunit for Series 2. Yeah, I, I loved um, the first season of Liar, um, so I, I'm all in on the next one. But I have heard mixed things about the second one, but um, yeah, I've got so much time for her, uh, the, the lead character in that, that that I'll definitely be back there. What's yeah. going on at Fox Classics? Fox Classic is uh, celebrating Christmas in July, Saturday the 25th of July. They've they've decided that it is, so they're going to be doing their British sitcom Christmas specials all day, like The Good Life and To The Manor Born, and then that night they screen It's A Wonderful Life and Scrooge. So, you know, it's certainly uh, cold enough to be celebrating Christmas in July. So Fox Classics uh, on Saturday if you're uh, cooking a turkey that night. Now, 911's a US drama that's been doing some pretty good business for Seven on, um, usually screened on Monday nights when they have new ones, I think. But there's a spin-off called 911 Lone Star and I've been hearing some good things about this. No, I reviewed it uh, several weeks ago and then Seven postponed it. Okay. Uh, I reviewed it for you for Media Week. and uh, So go back through it because I thought it was terrific. It's Rob Lowe and Liv Tyler. It's moved down to Texas. There's a real 2020 feel to it. You don't see this in the promo, but what the show is actually about is Rob Lowe's specialty is putting together diverse multicultural teams to uh, fight emergencies. So he ends up in Texas of all places with his gay son, a trans man, um, a Muslim uh, in a, uh, who's an Instagrammer for being famous. And so he's got the, and there's this crazy mad scene because Ryan Murphy makes it in episode two where this woman rings the, you know, the emergency service because there's smoke. And it turns out that she's just a, a racist who doesn't like it that a, her, you know, her neighbours are doing a hungy in the ground and she doesn't like the smoke from the pit. So 
they all kind of turn on her. And so she, she, she says, oh, I'm having a heart attack. I'm, I'm having a heart attack. She falls over and she's trying to get Rob Lowe to give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And he says, I'm not kissing you. I'll get one of my guys to do it. And so all these people line up and she says, oh, yeah, I'll take you. And the son goes, ma'am, you do know I'm a homosexual, don't you? And then, of course, she finds out there's a trans. It's hilarious. And I love it that Ryan Murphy really gets in there and pushes this in 2020. It's a terrific show. I've watched the first two episodes, 911 Lines, start checking it out. Fantastic. All right, let's end on Big Brother. The um, final, the, the um, nielsen Ostam rating system has been sort of um, had a few technical glitches this week, so we don't know how many people watched the series final. But uh, what was it like for the viewer? Well, look, you know, I was thrilled at who won the show. They were all back there. They were all social distancing. And then they announced the winners and the, the you know, confetti went in the air. And they were all hugging and kissing. <laughs> look, I was just so thrilled that Chad won the prize, which he's going to share with his new lady, love Sophie. Because, you know, those guys in the house, Dan, the former AFL football player, and Matt, the arrogance of them throughout the whole series that they were the alpha males and that Australia would love them because they were typical blokes. It made me want to vomit. And when Dan was there in that fight, even on the last night, he was still sort of saying, oh, well, I've got a girlfriend and a wife and it'd be really good for me to win this prize money for set up my new life and all this. And I was like, please. And Matt said, oh, yeah, I'm hoping all the footy heads pick up the phone and vote for the bloke tonight. And I was like, oh, pass me the bucket. So I was really glad when Chad uh, outshone those two guys who just thought that they were the they were the best things in there and that they didn't end up winning the show. And I think the right winner won Big Brother. Um, so, you know, well done to Seven. They did suck me in. I, as I talked to you before, I think that they need to really watch the format because when housemates are voting out other housemates, it does become very Lord of the Flies and they pick on the the weak and vulnerable. But I know the big brother was in there a couple of times when that did happen and he kept those people in a white room or a side room and brought them back in. Um, And those alpha males did not like that and actually threw a real tantrum the last time it happened when Sophie came back or they thought they'd gotten rid of her. They didn't like it when Big Brother brought her back into the game. Um, But, yeah, you know, Big Brother, I think, had a pretty good year for its first time on Channel 7. All right, good stuff. Look, always good uh, chatting with you, Andrew. I've got to go off and catch up on some of my Perry Masons this weekend. I I note Foxtel has just... Uh, announced it's been recommissioned for a second season, which, um, and I think you said here the other day that um, this was virtually a prequel, so I guess they were, was pretty much maybe already a foregone conclusion it would be back. But I think he's um, halfway through this season, he's almost passed his bar exams, I think, hasn't he? Yeah, um, somebody, I saw somebody, uh, a, a writer, uh, an Australian TV writer say that around episode five, it really starts to come together. And I must admit, I've watched up to episode four and kind of gone, oh, but that's encouraged me to go back and finish it all because, you know, they love the, you know, they love the recreations and, uh, you know, I've got to go back and finish it. All right, good stuff. All right, Andrew, we'll speak again soon. Thank you, James.